3CR would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledges the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded. Lucia Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8.30am. Yeah. Good morning. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Good morning, Em. Morning, Katia. It's just us this morning. It is just us. Our beloved teammates, uh, Shahrazad and Apech, are having a quiet morning in this morning. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a good one. I think it will be a good one. We're going to both just take a cruisy, play some music, do some interviews. Yeah. Yeah, today's what, the 16th? Yes, it Can't is. Can't believe it's halfway through August already. I know, it is. It's going very quickly. Yeah. Um, so what do we have on the show this morning? So today we, well, at 7.15 this morning, we're going to be chatting with Cassandra Goldie, who's CEO of ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services, about um, Centrelink's new robo-debt trial mm. and how scary that is. <laughs> it's back. It's back. It's back. Yeah. And worse than ever. Okay. So we'll be talking about that. Um, and then at 7.30, I think we have someone coming into the studio. Yes, we do. So we've, we've got Jeswin Yogaratnam coming back in. He hasn't been in for a few weeks now because we've been so busy doing special programming. Um, but he's back in to talk about the, uh, the global com- Sorry, I just had a mind blank. The Global Compact on Refugees, which um, will be released to the UN later this year. So we'll probably do a recap with him uh, and then see where they're up to. And then after that, I think you'll be chatting with May uh, Maloney. Yes, May Maloney, who's this year's recipient uh, of the Gender and Disaster Award, uh, who has done lots of humanitarian work. So it's huma- World Humanitarian Day on Sunday. So we're going to be talking to her about her work, but and also some of the um, challenges and things to think about when we're looking at humanitarianism. And then after that, we'll be talking with Alana Lenton, President of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies, Whiteness, Associate, Whiteness Studies Association, sorry, um, about a course that she's currently teaching called Understanding Race. And then I think just after that, we'll be um, chatting with Iris, who's a member of 3CR's very own Queering the Air Collective, about a snap action that happened last night against um, a transphobic uh, book launch and speaking to her. Excellent. I think first up we're going to play a song, though. Absolutely. Let me just get, yeah, get sure. the music together. We can maybe um, read the weather for this morning. So today's weather will be 14 degrees, and we're currently on 12 with a 62% chance of rain. Love it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> just waiting for the good old, just, the just good old music to load. <laughs> Um, all right. Maybe we can go to a, no, a short I'm, announcement. Oh, yeah, no, we're, go. we're good to go. Excellent. We're good to go. <laughs> we don't take no pictures. Game type fixture. Don't invite me, don't invite me out, cause I won't go. Wicked on the feeling right, right, heavy solo. 
Mamacita loco, Tennessee's a no-no. She don't take no picture, game time fixture. Don't invite me, don't invite me out, cause I won't go. Weekends feeling slow-mo, drunk and how you don't know. Mamacita loco, taquilas a no-no. Pusos on my window, chicas on my pillow. Nigga die yelling, ay, papi tranquilo. This is all my day, all my day. Better learn to surf on these sands before them waves. Like to own my own Kylie Jenner blue suede, yeah. Like to own her own bad bougie, yeah, she knows, yeah. Designer for them clothes, yeah. Bird see these hoes, ghosts and flows, posture. It ain't a trainer's culture. We don't take no pictures, game time fixture. Don't invite me, don't invite me out, cause I won't go. Weekends on the feeling right, right, heavy solo. Mama sita loco, Hennessy's a no no. She don't take no picture, game time fixture. Don't invite me, don't invite me out, cause I won't go. Weekends feeling slow, ho. Drunk and how you don't know. Mama sita loco, taquilas a no no. Squad, that's a lingo. Yeah. Gambino, they ain't like this shit. Oh, I'm a Negro. They ain't like Americanos. Yeah. I'm Galino. Yeah. Catch me outside with my people. I don't play around. Play around. Get you outside. We don't take no pictures. Game time fixture. Don't invite me, don't invite me out, cause I won't go. Wicked on the feeling right, right, heavy solo. Mama sita loco, Hennessy's a no no. She don't take no picture. Game time fixture. Don't invite me, don't invite me out, cause I won't go. Wicked feeling slow mo. Drunk and how you don't know. Mama sita loco, taquilas a no no. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Good morning again. So you're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. That track that we just heard before was Peter Rothoni, No No Hennessy, um, a really amazing track by a local rapper who was born in South Sudan um, and who, yeah, everything he does is actually so excellent. So I'd really encourage you to check him out. Um, but also on that note, I thought we should just like um, take a second to congratulate ourselves, really. <laughs> I know, Pat, yeah. big Pat's on the back. Big Pat's on the back for our show last week. So if you didn't 
get a chance to listen to it. Um, last week we had a really special broadcast um, which was called Enough is Enough Beyond Hashtag African Gangs. And so we had, what, four four really incredible guests live in the studio. Nepech and Shahrazad were facilitating a conversation around how do we actually move beyond this, um, this discourse of so-called African gangs that has been um, constructed by the media, particularly here in um, at the moment. Um, yeah, it was a, such a great conversation, and you can, you can check it out online. Um, it's podcasted at, what is it? 3cr.org.au/thursday/thursday/breakfast. Yeah, I think that's our landing page. You can also, if if it's too hard, you can just do a search for us online yeah. for Thursday Breakfast 3CR. We should probably know our own web page, but it's there. It's podcasted, um, and so and I think is it available on iTunes? Maybe not. I don't know. I shouldn't say that if I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Um, yeah. But last week was excellent. So. Um, I feel really blessed that we got to put that together and we heard from from those amazing voices. Yeah, we had... Um, Who did we have join us again? We had... We had Arij Noor. Mariki Onus. Mariki Onus. Mikhail Mayek. Yes, and and Sabah Almayao. Yes. Yeah. It was fantastic. So, And we also should say um, a thank you to our coordinator, Gab, and our breakfast mentor, MV. And also we had the lovely uh, Tuesday breakfast hosts, Anya and Ayan, come in and support us for the morning yeah. as well. So big it was, shout out. Yeah, big shout out. It was a really amazing morning and we all got to come in and were very excited and the studio was very full. Yeah. Yeah. So um, should we go to talking about some things that have been going on recently? Yes. Okay. Um, well, maybe, yeah, first of all, um, I just wanted to mention, I'm sure listeners might be aware of um, Crossbench Senator Fraser Anning's um, speech on Tuesday night on the floor of Parliament. Um, this was his maiden speech and it was incredibly racist, xenophobic, um, Islamophobic, and sexist, sexist <laughs> covered all bases. It really did. Um, and, yeah, used, also in particular, you know, used the, um, used the phrase final solution when referring to um, Australia's immigration policy, um, which, you know, recalls or is a direct reference to, um, you know, the Nazi Germany Holocaust um, and we really, on Thursday breakfast, we really don't want to give more airtime mm. to this sort of um, hateful and racist speech. Um, so I think this morning we're not actually going to go into detail about discussing uh, Fraser Anning's yeah. um, speech, you know, which he's refused to apologise for. But the thing that I did just actually want to mention is is the responses to his speech over the past um, 24, 48 hours. Because um, so politicians on all sides... Um, have come out and roundly condemned Fraser Anning's speech and said, you know, it's it's um, racist, it's un-Australian, it's um, yeah, it shouldn't be allowed, which is important on the one hand. But I think what we also need to think about is how this allows, um, yeah, allows our politicians to point to the bad racist over there um, and therefore absolve themselves of that and um, be seen as good anti-racists. Um, you know, there was even one uh, senator, I believe it was Darren Hinch, who um, he, after 
Fraser Anning gave his speech. He um, followed followed Parliament protocol and um, went and shook um, Senator Anning's hand. And then afterwards, once all this sort of condemnation started, he was like, oh, look, I'm really sorry I did this. I followed protocol, but I just want you all to know that I went home and I washed my hand. Mm. Um, and, it, I mean, it's almost a caricature, but I think that sort of really... Um, yeah, it, it shows how this idea that you can, like, wash racism off you, mm-hmm. you know, that you can, you can clean your hands and um, not be guilty of this, of this sin of racism when there's this, um, you know, obviously very extreme example of um, racism that's being aired and essentially, you know, vindicated even in its condemnation. Um, but that actually the rest of Parliament and the rest of the politicians and the rest of Australia more broadly can't actually wash their hands of this racism. And so we need to think, like, how actually did Fraser Anning get there? You know, he's actually not an anomaly. It's not an exception. This has been, this is only possible because of decades and decades, centuries, in fact, of anti-black, racist, Mm. xenophobic foundations of the white Australian state. Definitely. And I think that... Uh, also we're seeing, I mean, one of the problems particularly with the Senate is a number of uh, fringe senators coming in through preference deals. And, I, and so on one hand we have a senator that is resembling uh, something that has been around, as you said, M, for a very long time, but also this very strong and, and emerging undercurrent of very um, kind of severe white supremacy that's going on in Australia at the moment. But then also the ways in which then these voices are allowed a space in the Senate when they actually don't get that many votes and that it's all done through preference deals. And then how those fringe senators come in and pull everyone to the right. And so Mm -hmm. instead of, um, as you just said, people that would expound very conservative or racist ideals are now more left than what we have in the extreme right. Yeah, we've even had Pauline, like One Nation leader Pauline Hanson come out and condemn um, Senator Anning. You know, she's, she's said that this is unacceptable. And so for her to be seen as, like, relatively non-racist comparatively, yes. terrifying. It's really terrifying. It's really terrifying, yes. Yeah. We'll probably have to now go to a few short community service announcements and we'll back, be back with Cassandra Goldie from ACOS. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. 
With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and most importantly, peers in the community. a familiar voice it was <laughs> <laughs> what a yep like ominous oh, um it, it way to a, start the morning it is but a very off. excited for it yeah it'll be yeah. great so it's on the 31st of august and we're going to um, be speaking to some incredible panelists about overdose awareness and stigma surrounding overdose death so yeah. join us for that looking forward to it yes. but for now we're going to be joined by Cassandra Goldie, who's CEO of ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services, to discuss um, the risk and negligence associated with Centrelink's most recent robo-debt trial. Good morning, Cassandra. Yes, good morning. So I was wondering if we could begin by, um, would you just have to tell us a bit about what, what is robo-debt? Sure. Well, um, it's it, a uh, big um, data matching exercise that the federal government introduced um, about 18 months ago um, where it's data match now the records for you. If you've been receiving Social Security at some time in the last six years, um, matching records with the tax office. And, of course, when you you file your um, tax return, you report your annual income using your annual income, averaging that over the 26 lots of fortnights over the last six years and assessing that on that assumption that your income was the same for all those 26 weeks, you might have received too much Social Security during that last six-year period. Uh, And if uh, if the automated data collection matching exercise suggest that you got an, what's called an overpayment, too much Social Security for the income that you uh, assess to have received, then they pursue you for the debt. Mm. And all that's done online as well. Um, so it's not like you get a, a warm phone call from somebody saying, just want to check, we've had this uh, you know, assessment made, we want to check with you whether it's correct and you know, step you through it. Um, it is initially all automated um, on the online system. And, um, of course, in many, many cases, that's not accurate. I mean, we know the real work, real world of work is that you, your income often varies from week to week. Um, and um, But the onus of proof, this is the key thing, what's changed is the onus of proof has been completely flipped around. So in the past, um, Centrelink would have to go out and collect sort of proof that you'd actually earn more in a particular fortnight than um, you had reported to them that you did in order to raise a debt against you. And now they're using the data matching to say, well, unless you can prove to us the contrary, we're going to assume that you received the same amount of income, it's called income averaging, um, and we're going to pursue you for this debt. Um, And it's caused enormous distress for so many people in the community who've been hit by this. Um, in many cases, people have not kept the records. I mean, six years is a very long time. 
Um, and, you know, you're meant to have kept every bank, you know, statement and income receipt from the multiple employers that you may have, may have had during that period. And so it's extremely distressing for people. Um, a big system that's got an enormous amount of power over your life coming after you. And in many cases, these are big debts that are being raised in the thousands of dollars. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I know that I certainly don't have records of all my income over the past six years. I mean, not even the past two years, hardly. No, who does? I mean, this is the thing. And, I mean, what's, um, I think, particularly um, uh, unfair about this is that even um, for people who did exactly the right thing, you know, um, and kept all of the records that they were told they were meant to keep by Centrelink, um, you weren't told to keep them for six years much shorter period of time and out of the blue uh, the government has come after people going back a very long period of time and mm. we we have had so many people since this got up and running um, uh, identify how distressed it's been for them i mean many people are on very modest income it's not like you've got thousands of dollars sitting in the bank ready to pay um, a debt that you had no idea um, you're going to be pursued for. We are very worried that people have paid debts they didn't owe because it was all too distressing mm. and they just want Centrelink kind of out of their lives. Um, and um, the government made some um, improvements to the communication around all this after a funeral, um, thanks to many people who had the courage to get on the radio and speak up about this. I mean, radio played a key role in this. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks in, in, for that. In supporting people, you know, to come yeah. through. It's intimidating to get on the, on, you know, on, in, out in the public arena and talk about your experience of having been on Social Security. But that's what did it to at least put mm-hmm. pressure on the government. It's not we're not where we are though. And the reason we're talking this morning is um, we were recently advised that the government was now going to trial robo debt, as, as we've mm. all called it. Um, on people who are identified that Centrelink knows are vulnerable with either a, uh, a significant mental health condition, with an intellectual disability, um, those people in those kinds of situations. And we wrote urgently to the minister urging him to stop this. I mean, we want mm-hmm. the whole system stopped and reviewed properly. Yeah. Um, and in Parliament yesterday, the minister did stand up and we understand that he's put a pause on this latest trial, Mm -hmm. so-called, targeting people who are vulnerable. Um, And we are are really hoping this is a very early sign that this minister, who is newer in this portfolio, he didn't design, rather did himself, is having a serious rethink about the whole thing. Mm. So am I right that in the past um, there have been what's called... Um, so-called like vulnerability indicators on people's files for Centrelink, so, which means that people, um, as you mentioned, who are experiencing severe mental illness or homelessness or drug addiction, for example, um, would be not included within those previous um, robo, so-called robo-debt schemes. Is That's that right. Yeah. That's right. And so then with this most recent trial, um, they've removed that exemption. And so um, people who are experiencing... Um, you know, severe and compounding forms of disadvantage um, are, yeah, exposed, I guess, to the, this, this, this um, automated debt recovery system. That's right. Now, the government, we, we understand that the, um, in, in this so-called trial, 
um, targeting people who the government knows are vulnerable, um, that the communication is being done differently, how it was being done differently with the personal contact to the individual or family. But it doesn't, rather than just relying on online communication. But you do still need to have, have the person be prepared to engage with Centrelink um, and um, and it doesn't take away from the fact that, that, that on, upon being interviewed, you are still being asked to prove um, that you earned the income you reported over that six-year period in some cases, we understand, um, and that if you can't prove it, then they will pursue in raising the debt against you. Now, we this was in the news in the last 24 hours. Um, we... Um, a journalist did cover this story and we've been contacted by um, somebody who immediately who said, I've just, I've been through it. Um, and the, in her own words, she's a carer um, and um, caring for her adult daughter who has an intellectual disability. And she described the whole experience as threatened. She felt threatened and intimidated, deeply judged. It was been extremely distressing. Now, we know that... Um, with the big sort of robo-debt that's been going for 18 months, that it has caused people to feel um, at risk, um, you know, suicidal. Um, and this, this um, experience is deeply distressing. I want to be clear here. It's not like um, we're saying it's fine for people to be paid more security, social security, than they're entitled to receive. We also think there is a place for... Uh, what's called data matching, um, you know, that can be helpful to you. No, but the problem is that people who have received more money, Social Security, than they are entitled to are the first often to say, this is a problem for me because they spent it. They spent it six years ago when they got it because, you know, it's not enough. Social Security, if you're on Newstart, for example, $39 a day, you are going to spend every dollar you receive and you think, you, you, you know, you've, it's been given to you by Centrelink so you think you're entitled to get it. You've done the right thing because you reported your income at the time. Um, the money is gone and yet the government is coming after you, you know, six, six years, um, you know, historically to try and claw back so-called overpayments. Um, what we say to the government is you should not be going back like this. This is we're in a new era of digital capability. Right? We're all talking about it. Aren't we my health record and what big data can do. Why don't we sit down and work with people who are needing to rely on social security to design data matching for the future in a way that would be beneficial for people in the community, so that mm. you are accurately getting exactly the amount of the Social Security that you are entitled to and that we start to remove the experience of overpayments in the future. Yeah, I feel like you raised two really important points there is, you know, firstly, the the importance of grounding this conversation in the impacts it ha- like that it has on people and the impacts that this, um, you know, robo-debt scheme has on our communities and on people's lives. Um, and then secondly, that the question of... Um, you know, potential Centrelink overpayments actually needs to be expanded out to look at the fact that this system is inadequate, that people aren't getting enough money to actually live on, um, you know, and getting getting caught up on whether a minority of people are getting 
you know, more or less actually obscures the conversation from the structural problem of, um, on the whole, um, social welfare payments in this country being grossly inadequate for um, an, yeah, a standard of living that we should all be able to expect. Well, uh, exactly. I mean, we, we um, would like to see these senior ministers of this government all have expressed how deeply concerned they were about the level of student deprivation that the universities of Australia mm. identified. Um, that was quite recent, that, wasn't it, that report? Within the last week. It was mm. the beginning of last week. Um, we, I mean, ACOS has been um, working closely with uh, a number of universities, including the group of eight universities and also UGS, looking at the experience of students and, you know, the level of deprivation. This is a really important report. Um, this is not about student whinging. You know, this is about understanding that if you don't have wealth behind you and your family and you are pursuing higher education, you have to have some kind of basic um, level of income to put food on the table um, and to keep a stable roof over your head so that you can engage in your education properly. And youth allowance is now um, less than $32 a day. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion. ACOS has advocated persistently with many others, including the business community, for the government to increase new start which is less than $39 a day, well, youth allowance is even less. Yeah, it's appalling. Absolutely appalling situation. I mean, our leading economists have identified that that's the most important thing the government should be doing in the federal budget to to address um, the issues of, you know, social deprivation in the the community. But instead, the government um, rammed through the parliament $144 in personal income tax cuts over the next 10 years. And so... I don't think this is what the community is after, actually. And thank you for, you know, for having this conversation this morning. I really want to say to those who are listening, who are experiencing this or know somebody in the family who are, to continue to speak up. Um, if you're not not feeling safe to speak up, but you want to tell your story, we would love to hear from you. You can, you know, um, direct message us on Facebook. Tell us what's going on for you. And in a way that feels safe for you, we will continue to highlight this because even if the politicians don't want to know, the community will want to know this. And that's how we continue to put the pressure on the politicians to do the right thing. Absolutely. And on that note, um, Cassandra, we might have to wrap it up for this morning. But, yeah, I think that's such an important point that we can all get involved and put pressure on the government um, to let them know that we yeah, don't think this is acceptable um, and that we want this whole system to be um, scrapped. Ideally. That's right, and I th- and I think the 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 fact is that um, unless we do start to open up the uh, safety in the community for people to talk about what's going on with their dealings with Centrelink, it's very easy for people who are in this situation to feel like it just happened to you that somehow you did the wrong thing in your life, you know, yeah. um, what you know that you are being individually targeted when in fact this is a very big shared experience across the community not having enough income to live on, going without food on a daily basis, um, and on top of that, in some cases, being targeted in this way from the Department of Human Services, which is meant to be there as a support for the Australian community, and it has absolutely got out of whack with what it's there to do, um, and the politicians need to understand that. Absolutely. Powerful note to end on. Thank you so much, Cassandra. We'd love to have you back on air in future. Thanks a lot.
got to remember, Nanox a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair coming up on September 8th and 9th in Eltham. There'll be books, art, giftware and talks by Philip Johnson, A.B. Bishop and Loretta Childs. There will also be demonstrations and workshops on botanical art, propagation and native bonsai, as well as activities for children, refreshments and door prizes. Saturday and Sunday, September 8th and 9th, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Contact at apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more details. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. You're on 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. We're back in the st- well, we're in the studio, we're not back, we're just here in the studio um, and we have a returning guest from a few weeks ago. We haven't heard from Jez in a few weeks now, so Jeswin Yogaratnam, law lecturer at Charles Darwin University. Yes, is that... Formally, yes. Formally, sorry, we'll have to get an updated bio for you, Jez, sorry about that. Um, Jez has been coming into the studio every few weeks to talk about the Global Compact on Refugees uh, and... It's been a little while since we spoke, so we're going to do a little bit of a recap first on what that is and then get into a bit of a discussion. So, good morning, Jez. Yeah, good morning. Um, well, the Global Compact on Refugees, well, clearly that has come about by way of the uh, New York Declaration in 2016. And, and as a result of that declaration, a few things have happened on the global stand. One is looking at the issue of uh, migrants um, and one is the issue of refugees. So more specifically on the issue of refugees, um, uh, the summit which is coming this year in 2018, September, will really provide, I guess, the uh, forward thinking and moving and, and documents that, need, that we'll consider in relation to how this area is going to progress. Now, 
one of the things that have come out of the New York Declaration is the, the issue of responsibility sharing. And I think in recapping what I've noted from weeks ago, while we started talking about the human security concept and we started talking about uh, the, people, the people-centered approach and the whole society approach, which is really what uh, the Global Compact, I think, is trying to achieve, which is the, the whole society approach, i.e. bringing all the parties together or all the players together from the international level uh, uh, and the international agencies like IOM and UNHCR and the uh, and then the domestic organizations and, of course, the state itself together with civil society. Now, one of the th- key things that come out of the, the um, uh, Global Compact on Refugees is the concept of, ref- of responsibility sharing. And I think one of the things that we need to understand is what do we mean when we talk about responsibility sharing in this sense? Because it can mean a lot of things to many people who are from different sectors. But what do we, what do we mean when we talk about responsibility sharing in the context of um, the Global Compact on Refugees? Now, here is where we need to go back to the New York Declaration itself. And New York Declaration makes a number of commitments in relation to um, you know, the refugee uh, matter. And one of and the few things that I think we can uh, unpack from that we can unpack from the refugee uh, from the New York Declaration is that number one, responsible sharing is really about respect and protection for their human rights and fundamental freedoms. So we talk about responsible sharing. We're also talking about our commitment in terms of responsibility sharing to respect and, and protect the human rights and fundamental freedoms of, of, of even refugees. Can I uh, just ask there, so when we say responsibility sharing, do we mean responsibility by all these different nations yes. um, for, for, for what exactly? So, good question. So, responsibility sharing, I think, is broadened just between nations in the context of what the refugee compact is trying to achieve. While on the broader level, it does seem to appear that it's states and nations that uh, who have who you know who have signed up to the declaration that are involved. But at the end of the day, it's states, it's all the international agencies, it's all the domestic uh, players, whether it's corporations, whether it's in terms of private sector, whether it's the civil society, all coming together to play a part in this role. Also, the, also organisations like you know faith-based, faith-based organisations. Uh, also play a part in this in this uh, uh, you know role in terms of how they want to contribute in, in 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 this issue, but but coming back to some of the uh, key commitments by the New York Declaration, which go, which which address the issue on on responsibility sharing. So we're talking about responsibility sharing number one on respect and protection of uh, the human rights and fundamental freedoms, of the special needs of vulnerable. Uh, uh, vulnerable people in vulnerable situations. So what's our responsibility sharing role in that context? What's our responsibility sharing role in the context of international cooperation on border control and management? And that's more on that higher level in terms of between nations. For example, what would Australia and Indonesia uh, in the context of responsibility sharing on, on, the, on the border control? What is, what is our role in that context? Um, also, the, the responsibility sharing on the collection of accurate information because you know, more often than not, we are, we go by the rhetoric or, or statements which are you know fake news, if you want, uh, in relation to some of these issues. So mm-hmm. there should be some level of responsibility sharing also in, the t- in terms of collection of accurate information. And the final point on uh, on on oh, one of the other points that noted in the New York de- uh, Declaration also in terms of com- commitment on mainstreaming a gender perspective. Uh, because that in itself sometimes can be sidelined and not uh, uh, looked at more. Um, 
I guess, more progressively, especially when looking at women's issues in the context of refugees. Mm. And when we're looking at responsibility sharing and this, so the Global Compact will be a document that will be produced that in as a September. reference kind of a guideline, yeah. Yes. And so when we're, when we're looking at this document, and I think we touched on this a few weeks ago, actually maybe in the first session that we had with you, about how that responsibility sharing is monitored or... Um, or how binding is it? So how this document then can make sure that nation states yeah. are actually sharing responsibility? So it's a good question. Well, it, because it's an international law sort of instrument in it as such, it's not binding on the nations. However, through the responsibility sharing mechanisms, and here's where we need to understand that the Global Compact, is, while it's not a binding instrument in itself, it provides the mechanism for international cooperation, and that's what's important because more often than not, we talk about um, uh, the binding instrument, but we do not talk about how well it provides the mechanism for international cooperation. And in this instance, what we're looking at is the way in which such, a doc such uh, I guess, negotiations that happen as a result of this, of this global compact provides a mechanism for uh, international cooperation, but also then the way in which it deals with multi-sectoral entities, both from an international level and the domestic level, uh, which then makes it work. Because the other things that you know they're looking at in the context of commitments on responsibility sharing is also addressing the gaps in humanitarian funding. And here's where, through uh, the Global Compact, there's an understanding in terms of uh, commitment by the World Bank, for example, coming in, and also the, the other players of IOM uh, coming in to sort of assist in, in this area. Um, uh, and, and, and clearly, primarily, the other, the other commitment being the, uh, you know, addressing the drivers and causes, the root causes. There's also, there's also a need to be responsible sharing in this in terms of collection of data because, again, uh, we need to go by the facts and not by the fiction in terms of what's like, happening. The, sorry, do you mean the root causes of what's actually making people yes. have to either yes. seek asylum or migrate? Exactly, because yeah. these are sometimes the, the issues that are become contentious in terms of whether or not they are refugees. Uh, because we know that uh, the, you know, the claim of economic refugees is one that's not accepted in terms of um, de developing a case uh, on, on, on whether or not one can, be, can claim asylum in that, in that, in that instance. So, but, it, but also by addressing the drivers and root causes, what we can also do is develop strategies within that jurisdiction in terms of dealing with, the, with those who are affected which then, you know, in some, in, to some extent reduces the number of people that have to leave by way of being a refugee. So understanding the, and addressing the drivers and root causes are important because it can, uh, you know, promote some form of uh, cooperation between uh, whether it's a conflict state or, and another state that's willing to assist uh, in terms of what can be done on the ground at that level to sort of reduce the, the, the flow of refugees out. Can I ask you sure. quickly? With, so... With different nation states around the world, would there be different, because I'm not, I don't have a background in migration law sure. and a very yeah. small understanding of it. You, you mentioned before that you can't seek economic asylum. So do, do, do different states around the world actually have different um, criteria for seeking asylum or is it universally accepted? What are the criteria? Yeah, very good question. Well, the Refugee Convention uh, you know, make, has certain criteria, five grounds in terms of which the Refugee Convention provides, which is the universal criteria, if you want, that all states will apply. And in, 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 any one, in those five sort of uh, grounds, you'll find that you know, clearly one that's seeking economic benefits uh, merely for sort of, you know, improve their livelihood will not be a ground in the context of uh, seeking asylum. 
You know, so so in that context, um, all member states, so those who have signed up to the convention and ratified it, uh, do sort of adhere to those five grounds in terms of seeking asylum, uh, whether for political reasons, you know, uh, religious, uh, um, uh, polit- uh, particular association that you come from. Um, so, and, e- and the economic ground is one that's not acceptable. You know, so hence why, for example, with the Tamil Sri Lankans that have come, um, we've noted that uh, they've they've sort of uh, n- not been given that opportunity because they've been considered to be economic migrants more more often than not. Mm. We're actually out of time, so okay. we're going to have to wrap up. I went very quickly today, Indeed. so we'll have you back on to talk because it's the summit's coming up. Yes, in, in September. September. Yes, yeah, so will you be attending the summit? Uh, no, I won't, unfortunately, oh, but okay. I'll, I'm happy to report it from this end. Yes, uh, and I hope to talk about the next session, Australia's contribution in relation to you know the, the global compact and what can we what what can we do in this end excellent well thank you for coming on Thursday breakfast this morning Jasmine thank you uh, I always love having you on Cheers. the Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair coming up on September 8th and 9th in Eltham there'll be books art giftware and talks by Philip Johnson AB Bishop and Loretta Childs There will also be demonstrations and workshops on botanical art, propagation and native bonsai, as well as activities for children, refreshments and door prizes. Saturday and Sunday, September 8th and 9th, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Contact at apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430-513-433 for more details. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au, and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5, and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up. And we're still talking about revolution. 
You're on 3CR 855 AM. It's currently 7.48. So this Sunday is, uh, is World Humanitarian Day on the 19th of August. And World Humanitarian Day pays tribute to those who have died or risked their life assisting others and seeks to raise awareness of people affected by crisis. This morning to talk about um, their past experiences of humanitarian work, uh, we're joined by this year's recipient of the Mary Fran Myers Gender and Disaster Award. Uh, May Maloney has worked with the UNHCR, the Centre for Refugee Research of University of New South Wales, the Victorian Foundation for Survivors of Torture and Save the Children and Red Cross. Welcome, May. Good morning, Katia. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Nice to have you on. Um, Congratulations. So you won this year's Gender and Disaster Network Award. Yeah, I did. Thank you for the congratulations. It's a very exciting and humbling experience to win this award. And I think it's a really uh, interesting reminder of why World Humanitarian Day is so important. So this Gender and Disaster Award was really in recognition of some work that I've been doing, trying to link up local humanitarian workers anywhere from the steppes in Mongolia to the outer reaches of some villages in Afghanistan to um, cities like Manila, Bangkok, Dhaka in Bangladesh, Colombo in Sri Lanka. And this um, work that I was doing was to really link up all of these aid workers so that they could find ways to make sure that aid work around the world, whether it's in conflict or in disasters, reaches the people who are most in need. So by being aware of gender roles, by thinking of ways to reach out to more women or more people with disabilities or more young people or older people, um, this group of amazing humanitarian workers called the Gender and Disasters Network, they've actually been able to respond to emergencies like typhoons, uh, conflict outbreaks. Um, They've been able to respond to the refugee response situation um, of the Rohingya people fleeing uh, Myanmar into Bangladesh in a way that actually reaches more people because these amazing local humanitarian workers have been able to think about, you know, ways to get inside the household to reach women in the family by being women from families so that uh, really everybody in the community can see themselves reflected in humanitarian aid workers, can feel safer and can share their needs with aid workers so that therefore we can design aid programs and deliver assistance to where it's really needed. So I was very humbled to win this award and um, I think it's a really prescient reminder that um, local humanitarian workers are so, so, so important to all of our communities wherever we are around the world. Yeah, and you mentioned that um, having local people and local faces in different communities because traditionally humanitarian work has been, um, I guess, very external where people sort of go into countries to perform humanitarian aid work. So can you explain a little bit about how whether that's a shifting trend, whether there are more people from local communities um, working in crisis situations um, and how gender, the Gender and Disaster Network has sort of worked towards that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think in the news in Australia and um, in politics generally, we see big aid organisations like the UN, um, the International Red Cross, we see these really as the face of humanitarian work. And I guess we have a bit of a perception, therefore, that Humanitarian workers are these international people who are somehow sort of helicoptered in and and dropped into a zone of of people in need. 
But actually, um, humanitarian disasters and crises, I guess, have existed throughout time, especially when we think about things like natural disasters. And the people who are most affected are also the people who take the first actions. So, you know, we saw that in the Black Saturday fires in Victoria. The people who were affected were the ones who were helping each other out, who were taking local action to address the fire situation, who were sharing information with each other. That's the same in a village in Afghanistan that has a landslide or um, in, in China when there's an earthquake or in Manila when there's a typhoon or in the outer islands of the Philippines. So I think local people um, have always been the, the first face, um, but the people who are most affected are actually the first face of humanitarian response. And what we find as a trend more and more now is that the local humanitarian associations that those people are working with and volunteering with, like the local Red Cross Association or the local Red Crescent Association, which has mostly existed in many countries in the world for 50 to 100 years, we find that those organisations are becoming um, more visible. Um, we find that we're learning much more in the international news space about what those sorts of local networks are doing. And I think um, we're therefore getting a more balanced view of who's leading on international work, but they're on aid work. But there does remain a slight imbalance, I think, in the amount of attention and funding that goes to the big international humanitarian organisations that are the face of aid work. Um, and in doing that, we also, I guess, in that imbalance, we take away a little bit from the seriousness and the attention that's needed to the risks that local humanitarian workers face. The World Humanitarian Day, which is being celebrated this weekend, is a really good reminder that um, the people who are facing the most dangerous situations in humanitarian work are usually local humanitarian actors. They might not have the big protections that come with um, the high visibility uh, of you know, UN systems or of international aid systems. And they're the ones that we really need to get behind and make sure that they're safe. And, and one way of doing that um, that I've been working on has been this, this network um, and ensuring that really we have a diversity of, of local aid workers, so men and women in the community, who can go out and show that they're there to help, that aid work is impartial. They can also show that for example, where situations might be particularly unsafe for women or where there's a perception in the community that it's unsafe for women to undertake different activities. By having more women undertake those activities, by showing how to do that safely, we actually create um, much bigger space for humanitarian action to take place, for social inclusion, for disaster response, for building resilient communities and for responding to conflict. Um, hi, May. This is this is M here. Um, I just wanted to say that I think I think that's a really good point that you know disaster response, for example, isn't anything new, um, and then what we call humanitarian work, you know, actually could be more accurately called like community work and like supporting, you know, that people in a community supporting other people in their community, um, and that that's been happening forever, obviously, um, but that this sort of the label of humanitarianism and that sort of that system or that structure um, perhaps is a more recent and we could say, um, you know, really aligns with, I guess, like other colonial or imperialist structures of like Cartier was saying before, you know, where often it is um, nations that are more, 
um, well off or, you know, often the image of humanitarianism is, you know, of white people going and saving brown people. Um, and that, yeah, one of maybe the important things to do in the lead up to Humanitarian Day on the weekend is actually to challenge that image and say that this work has always been happening and it's been happening by people in community and for community. Yeah, Em, I think that's a really interesting and, and I think it's actually a really critical point. So um, I, I would only add one caution, which is that a lot of governments and a lot of communities around the world do request formally for international assistance to come in and, and help them out when the situation is really dire and when communities themselves feel like they need extra resources. So there is an element there of, you know, that sort of equality and request for assistance, which we need to be aware of, and perhaps that that needs to continue to exist to fill gaps um, in the unequal distribution of uh, resources around the world. But I think you've really hit the nail on the head in terms of um, all work, all development work, or all kind of work that we do to bring people together is humanitarian work. And if people who are listening want to think about ways that they can be involved in humanitarian work, I think that's really the first step. It's being active here now locally um, in, in Australia, in Victoria, to make sure that we're aware of the kinds of um, experiences that friends, neighbours and colleagues have had, that some friends, colleagues and neighbours have survived crises and disasters and they're resilient and strong. It's being aware that if a disaster were to strike us, um, there are some people in our community that we should be connected to um, who are going to have particular needs. We're going to need to help them out. That might be a, a neighbour who's um, maybe less mobile or more isolated, living um, rurally and remotely. It might be someone who's got... Um, uh, you know, kids in the family who will need care and support throughout the period of, of any kind of disaster and crisis. So we take lessons, I think, from the example I've given of how people overseas are connected and helping each other out, and we can help each other out to build stronger and more inclusive networks here in Australia, and we can volunteer ourselves to do that, and that's really one of the key um, aspects of being a humanitarian. It's, it's being willing to give your service in the aid of others, whomsoever those others are, and, and, and you know, whatever the characteristics of, of those people are in a non-discriminatory way. And we can do that locally, and we can do that internationally. And I think of programs um, that do exist now that build that strength and resilience. So um, I don't work for the Red Cross, um, but... Red Cross Australia has a program where you can volunteer to be connected to people who are isolated. You can phone them um, regularly to, to stay in touch. And that kind of um, simple local connection makes us stronger, makes us more resilient, makes us more prepared to deal with um, future disasters and crises, and, and they will come. And it shows that we're learning lessons from other communities all over the world that are doing this and have been doing this um, for a very long time. May, we're just on time so thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about your work and about humanitarian work um, overall and World Humanitarian Day um, and so you mentioned if people want to get involved they can look at what the local Red Cross is doing um, and to look at your work is there anywhere they can go online or? Uh, people can look at the Mary Fran Myers Award website to learn more about how to support gender and disaster networks um, as I said people can volunteer uh, there are emergencies around the world, so look at websites where you can give cash that will directly help people and uh, also have a think about how we can 
have some more um, humane uh, asylum policies in Australia to help people who've been through humanitarian programs and also perhaps uh, think about uh, parties that might have platforms to give more money to humanitarian work. So those would be my tips on how to get active. Great. Thank you so much, May. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. Bye. Bye. to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am with me, Em and Katia. I'm so excited that we got to play that track this morning. I'm obsessed. Um, that was Sophie Grophy with Purple Sway, um, who is a really incredible Nam-based rapper, born in Nigeria and raised in New Zealand. And that track is from her incredible first mixtape that was released in 2016. She's very cool. I saw her live a few months ago and it was excellent with Lady Lesher. It was a great oh, show. Next level. So good. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> 
Um, so now I think we're going to go to, and we're going to have a chat with um, Alana Lenton, who is the president of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association and associate professor of cultural and social analysis at Western Sydney University. And she's currently teaching a master's unit um, called Understanding Race, which, and there's a link to all the readings available on the Google Drive so that folks can follow along. But this morning I thought that we'd have a chat with her about this course and about her work more broadly. Hi, Alana. Good morning. Morning. Um, so I found out recently that you're, you're teaching this course called Understanding Race at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been having a look at all the readings that, um, you know, you can access through that Google Drive online. I was wondering, could you just tell us a bit about this course that you're running? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, firstly. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm sitting here on Gadigal country, which is unceded sovereign territory before I begin. Um, yeah, so I've been teaching at Western Sydney University for the last six years, and we've recently started offering master's degrees, and, uh, you know, I wasn't teaching on it. Last year, I had the opportunity to teach at the New School in New York, and I ran a graduate course uh, called Race Critical and Decolonial Sociology, and I decided to put um, the readings that we were doing online and to write a blog post each week on the book that we were reading. And I designed the unit in such a way that we had uh, mainly new books, mainly books that I hadn't read before. So it was this kind of common learning experience between me and the students, who were quite a diverse group from many different countries. And it was a smallish group. It was about 14 students. And every week I would write my reflections on the book that we were reading, and the students would also present. And I would usually get quite a lot out of the presentation. Then I would go back into the post and you know, update what I was thinking about uh, based on the reflection that I was having with my students. And uh, it was also republished on the um, public seminar website, which is a a website out of the new school. And so when I came back here, I wanted to do something relatively similar. But because of the remit of the students here, um, many of them thinking about these subjects for the first time at master's level, it had to be kind of a bit more broad and a bit more open. So The name Understanding Race was offered to me. It wouldn't have been necessarily my choice, but it was good because it was kind of able to encapsulate anything really that I wanted it to be. And so what I decided to do, mainly because the students, as I say, are kind of at a at a more, um, you know, they're they're, they're beginning on this trajectory of thinking about race, was to start writing about, you know, central concepts and debates in the field before getting into the specific readings that we're doing and accompanying that offering um, a Google Drive of, uh, the text that we're uh, looking at, and also within each blog post, linking to as much um, extra material that I could find, including videos and podcasts and audio, which is stuff that I use a lot for my own, you know, thinking and research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested because when you say that um, these students are, you know, only starting to begin to think about race, is that because I think like when we come to, to often talking about education around race, there can be assumption that it's for white people um, because white mm. people, you know, haven't have had the privilege of not having had to think well, about race. They haven't race. been to Western Sydney University then. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess just like, I'm interested. In, could you just maybe unpack that of like so, like who sort of like who yeah. is this education for, and how can we challenge some of those assumptions that it is only it's not education about race or about oh. racism or being a better white person. Right. Well, as I said, uh, my quip there about Western Sydney University, the best thing about it is that it's, there's hardly any white students. And that was one of the things that attracted me 
to working there because having worked in the UK for six years before at Sussex University, which is, has, you know, a reputation as being a kind of a radical space and there's a lot of really good activism that happens on campus, but attention to race was relatively, um, you know, light, small. In fact, they've developed a lot in that area since I left, which I don't know what that's saying, but that's great to see. Um, and so I was excited to come to Western Sydney University where we have, you know, I don't really like the word diverse, but it's an incredibly diverse um, student um, cohort. Uh, so my class, it's a, a small class. There are only six students, but everybody comes from somewhere different. Um, and they've either, you know, grown up in Australia or they're international students or whatever. So the conversation is completely different to what you'd expect. I'm extremely lucky that unlike most of many of my colleagues, I don't know if you recently saw the hit job by the Daily Telegraph on colleagues at Sydney University, um, you know, we don't, we're not open to those types of attacks um, as people working on race within that space, which is incredibly refreshing. So we can have conversations. And the really good thing is when I say that they're initiating their study of race, I'm talking about from a theoretical academic perspective, but obviously their life experiences are extremely, um, you know, well-versed in uh, how race functions, how race works and what race does in their lives. So you're, you're at that starting point, which is already, um, you know, and you're looking at it from a completely different perspective and it's extremely refreshing. Mm. And also um, that... I, I, again, you know, obviously I'm, I'm sadly not participating in your course, but I can imagine that maybe it's also about challenging the idea that um, race is something that, ca- that, that sort of can be known at that superficial level, that actually yeah. sort of um, trying to go deeper into yeah. how these, these histories and these structures of racism and, you know, categorization and genocide yeah. and white supremacy, you know, that that's foundational to understanding how race operates in a contemporary context. Mm. Um, yeah, sorry, that, that's, that's me assuming, that's but is that no, sort that's of... absolutely correct. And I, I sort of riff off a, a quote from a 2014 paper by um, Barner Hesse, who works at Northwestern, uh, in Chicago, and he says race. He's talking about sociology and what he calls uh, the difference between white and black analytics in, in sociology, and the history of black sociology developing along a separate path to white sociology, both because of institutional racism within the academy, but also because of the need for black scholars to develop particular lines of black thought, going back to W. E. B. Du Bois. But he talks about racism being more objected to than understood in sociology, and that's something that's very central to me in the sense that we all agree and we see it now, right, in the light of the Fraser Anning comments, everybody is against racism, right? Everybody has a position on racism. We know that it's wrong. But, you know, saying that something is wrong doesn't mean that you've in any sense understood how it works. So in a sense, while I say students have lived experience, which we bring into the classroom and we work on, at the same time, we treat race as an object of study, as an object of scholarship, that although race um, informs identity, it is, not, it is not reducible to identities. And that's incredibly important. So this week, for example, so next week we'll be looking at Stuart Hall's um, treatment of the relationship between race and culture, which is something that I've worked on a lot. And he was writing that in the sort of 90s when it was the heyday of globalization and trying to understand whether, why there seemed to be a proliferation of minority ethnicities and so on um, within the context of uh, globalization where you would have assumed that there would be a more of a homogenizing, universalizing world culture happening. And of course, he, you know, he makes the connection back to ongoing coloniality and so on. So back to structure, back to the types of racial articulation that he 
he was theorizing in the 1970s already. Mm. And, you know, I, I think it's um, so great that you're um, making this course accessible to an extent to people who aren't actually enrolled in uni mm. um, by having the links available online. But I just want to ask about, I guess, the tension between this sort of work um, in an academic space and an activism space, um, mm. you know, because obviously this, this course is, is a university course and is geared towards um, theory as well as obviously being grounded in um, people's lived experience. But yeah, how do you sort of navigate that, that tension of um, working across activism and, and academia and how to, how to make these conversations accessible? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, to be honest with you, I've been quite surprised by the extent of the response. Um, because when I put my last course online, there wasn't as much of a response. I just kind of did it because I was writing the blog post, and the students themselves are going to be starting to write blog posts as part of their assessment. So that's why I did it. And because I have a website that I've had for years, it was just an easier way of doing it because, of course, the university uses a closed system that other people can't access. And, and for the student, you know, it was, just, it was just for logistical purposes. And I've been relatively surprised that a lot of people have shared and, you know, you've contacted me. And so I, was, I didn't necessarily think about... Um, how to make it more accessible in terms of, um, you know, thinking about activist concerns. However, uh, you know, as somebody who's always been involved in anti-racism activism, it's important to me to try to think about, um, in a more grounded sense, how the kind of work that we generate in academia can actually be useful. But I do want to say one thing that I find um, that I find it to be important. That very often, you know, we talk about this divide between academic, academia and activism. But the critics, the people who criticize me or other people who work in race-critical scholarship as using jargon that can't be understood are generally white people who have an opposition to talking about race. And they'll say, you know, we can't understand that your terminology. But if you speak to people um, who are at the you know forefront of experiencing race and racism, they generally don't have a problem understanding the terminology, right? So it's interesting to me that often that kind of supposed gap between activism and academia is kind of generated um, by those who just really don't want to listen. And so, I mean, a first step is making everything accessible and available. The next step would be to think about, well, how could this, this content be transformed in such a way that could be useful? doesn't necessarily require you to sit down and read long texts um, you know, but that's something that I want to think about. One of the things we want to do with the association is to think about curriculum development and how we can develop curricula that then could be um, of service beyond only academic spaces uh, and with, um, with, you know, for use in, in activist and community spaces also. Mm. And, and just quickly on, on that note of what you're saying, um, what do you think is the... Yeah, the role or also maybe the risk of um, white people being engaged in anti-racist education or of, you know, um, calling themselves anti-racist educators or being involved in that space. Uh, are you directing the question to me personally? No, more, well, I mean, you can answer that however you like. Of like how, yeah. you know, how, more just like how, who, who, who is doing this sort of work? You know, like if we look at universities sure. um, and we look at who is doing this type of type of the teaching and type of educating um, mm -hmm. within Indigenous studies, within anti-racist education, you know, there is. Um, so, yeah, those conversations need to be had about who who's responsible for that mm. um, education, but also yeah. then who is taking up that space as well. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because on the one hand, people, you know, white academics are taking up space um, in fields that you know, just generally in the academy, right? Proportionally to 
the, the look of the population, uh, who makes up the population in all spheres, white people are overrepresented um, and should be, you know, should be, um, you know, there, should, there needs to be a loss of power at some point. I absolutely, um, uh, you know, agree with that. The other problem, the other side of the problem um, that many black academics, for example, in the U.S. discuss is that the burden of teaching race often falls upon people of color, black people and people of people of color and indigenous people um, as though they had no interest that's outside of race. Right. So there's those kind of two things going hand in hand. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at there are very few courses um, that deal with race specifically, certainly at my university or at many universities in Australia, and mainly they are taught by people of color, the few who are in the academy. And I think there is a kind of a tendency to think that white people are taking up space within within those areas of study, and I think there is. But if you think proportionally across the university, mainly white people don't concern themselves with, with race and how they're implicated in upholding racial structures both within academia and elsewhere. So... Um, you know, for example, I don't know if you followed, but recently the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association wrote an open letter to the Australian Academy of the Humanities um, because they're organizing a cultural studies colloquium. And there was, you know, there's a, there's a number of speakers and there was one speaker um, talking about cultural studies and indigenous issues who's a non-indigenous scholar. And we decided to write an open letter, which was signed by, I think, it's about 79 people signed the letter, uh, which we sent to the president of the Australian Academy asking them to, um, you know, to change this. And, of course, the response was, well, why couldn't you just have a conversation with us as colleagues? Why did you have to do this open letter? And the point is, I think that these systemic issues of complete occlusion and exclusion need to be brought out into the open and made transparent. So that white people are for, and in the letter we said, and you can read it, it's online, it's not that we want white people not to deal with these issues. In fact, we do think that they need to interrogate their own whiteness and their own participation in the upholding of racial structures and white supremacy. Um, but that's not what you get when you put a white professor to talk about cultural studies and indigenous issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, would you, how can people find out more about um, ACROSA and also how can they link in with this course that you're teaching? Um, okay, so ACROSA, we have a website which is um, ACROSA, A C R A W S A. Dot, uh, org dot au and we have a blog um, which uh, is open to to everybody who's interested in contributing to 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 contribute to we've got um, three sections on the blog one is um, for more senior uh, scholars uh, one is for um, you know more junior scholars where there's a there's a mentoring system in place if people are they don't necessarily have to be studying but they're people who think about race and would like an indigeneity and would like to write on those issues and we particularly we prioritize the work of indigenous writers um, and critical race uh, you know people working in the critical race space but you know we prioritize as I say indigenous writers there is a mentoring system in place for people who feel you know I haven't written a blog post before I'd like to understand how to translate my research or my thinking into a shorter piece and so on so that's there and, and you know instructions on how to um, submit are on the website but beyond uh, the website and the blog um, we would really like to get more people involved in the work of the association. At the moment, um, you know, we're kind of starting up again after a period of relative mm -hmm. quiet. The journal editors are just about to relaunch the journal because we have an open 
uh, free access uh, journal, the Journal of Critical Race and Whiteness Studies online, also via the website. Mm-hmm. And we had our first event, which we organized um, in early July, called Thinking Relationally About Blackness, uh, Race, Blackness, and Indigeneity in Australia, yeah, with and- Irene Watson and mm-hmm. Alexander Wehelier. Yeah, and um, I re- sorry, sorry to cut yeah. you off there, Alana. Um, I really encourage people to yeah to look up a crosser and check it out. We're just unfortunately running out of time. Um, sorry, and that's no, that's all right. I wish we had more time to talk. Um, and to find your course, I believe they can look you up and go on your website. Is that right? AlanaLenton.net. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Alana. Thank you. Have a lovely morning. You too. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. Rumination. Re-CRs, Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program. Featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Um, now we're really lucky to have a quick chat with Iris Lee, who's a white trans femme living on Bunurong and Wurundjeri country, about a snap protest that happened last night. Good morning, Iris. Um, good morning. Um. Um, so I was wondering, could you just give us a bit of background on this um, snap action that occurred last night in Box Hill? Yeah, um, yeah. It came, so it came out quite suddenly. Um, I heard recently last week about Quinton Van Meter, who's touring the country with a book launch, as well as um, sort of spouting his own sort of anti-LGBT hate and. He's from the U.S. and the Southern Poverty Law Centre listed the organisation he's a part of on their hate list. So we're talking like quite extreme right-wing sort of bigotry here. Um, the Australian Families Association is also the group that was behind the panic around trans people marrying during the postal survey. Um, so yeah, then we've seen particularly um, on Friday there's it's been going to all the major cities and on Friday it's at UWA and we've seen a lot of protests around um, that it's being held at the university there. Mm. Yeah, and um, so how did how did the action last night go in Box Hill? Yeah, uh, I think it surprised me on a number of levels because I wasn't really expecting like over 30 people there and there was quite a absurd police response. There was like four riot cars um, and all the other cops. So there's a lot of cops there, um, obviously trying to protect the event. But I think, yeah, we like the event was well opposed, and it was really good to see. Um, 
Yeah, at one point we we found out where like there was a back door and we could just make do make like what's the sound? The cops were protecting the entrance and we could, we kind of quite typically disrupted their event because yeah, there was a lot of sound being made and political posting mama who's one of the key sort of leaders that run an anti-safe schools campaign and sort of posed as the innocent Liberal Party staffer, um, who's now also an elected dele- delegate of the Victorian Liberal Party as of this year. She posted about how pissed off she was with all the disruptions. So I think, like, we did a pretty good job considering, like, how many cops mm-hmm. were there. And um, there was, like, some heated moments for cops, uh, cops, and they were, like, roughly pushing some people, and it was some, yeah. So that's kind of concerning in terms mm-hmm. of, like, we're seeing in Victoria, like, this increased police presence and increased targeting of protests, but obviously it particularly targets communities of colour and black communities. Yeah, and also I think, you know, you made the point, or you mentioned... Um, that this group was involved in sort of that really transphobic um, organising around the time of the yes vote. And, you know, we're only we're only three months away from the anniversary of the yes vote. Um, and I think it's, it's a really important to highlight, you know, that we have the cops um, essentially intimidating pe- like, um, LGBTQ people who are trying to, you know, defend our rights. And yet, on the other hand, we have um, a nation or a state who is trying to claim that we're, you know, all about marriage equality and um, LGBTIQ equality. So, yes, there's a lot of um, hypocrisy going on there, arguably. Um, but I was wondering, could you, what, what, were actually, what were your key demands at the um, protest last night? Yeah, it was, it was kind of like a loose last minute put together just trying to get people to come. So um, things were pretty loose. So some of the demands we spoke about were sort of like in opposition to conversion therapy, which is one of the things people at, um, yeah, at these meetings are wanting, um, is to ban conversion therapy. It is another thing that people are talking about is LGBTIQ healthcare, particularly a lot of trans healthcare is nothing. There really is nothing, and it needs to be funded. And another thing that we've talked about is that there's exemptions from bigotry for religious organisations, which means over 200,000 workers can be fired if they come out. Um, so that's a massive concern, as well as just in general, just trying to fight back by the attacks on safe schools that should have been to some extent successful. And and in, in general, the sort of transphobia and transmisogyny in, in communities, because like that's like when I suppose like when the trans exclusionary feminists like have a go at trans people all the time, it actually gives people like Quinton Van Meter cover because yeah, I was doing some research and he mentions like radical feminists to justify sort of some of these points. So it's really concerning when they sort of have this alliance, um, a holy alliance, I guess. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a good point. Um, and unfortunately, we're running out of time this morning, um, but how can people get involved and support what you're doing to protest against this, um, yeah, transphobic hate speech, essentially? Yeah, um, 
Yeah, we just like a loose collection of people. It's not anything formal being formed, but there was a protest. A number for the protest was 0490189387, and that's going to be a number used for any future action. So you can send your details to 0490189387, and that will be used for anything in the future that comes up. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Iris, for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. And I just wanted to let listeners know that, yeah, in case, I guess, that conversation around transphobia brought anything up, um, that you can call Switchboard, which is um, a not-for-profit peer-based queer mental health line on 1800-184-527. Or there's also an online chat at qlife.org.au, which runs from 3pm to midnight every day. So I really encourage you to, yeah, just reach out if that brought up anything for you because it's all, um, yeah, these attacks against our communities are all pretty full on and we need to look after each other. And M, amazing show. We got through it together without our lovely co-hosts, but we've actually just out of time. Like we need to finish like we up. we always do this. Yeah, we're like pushing it right to the end. And we always hope to have a little chat at the end and there it goes. No, it's just gone. So today on the show we um, started off with Cassandra from ACOS. Then we spoke to Jeswin Yogaratnam about the uh, Global Compact on Refugees. And then with May Maloney, um, this year's recipient of the uh, Gender and Disaster Award. Um, and then Alana Lenton, president of Acrosa, and finally the wonderful Iris Lee um, about a protest last night. And that's all we have time that's, for. That's it. We, we just have yep. to go. Bye. So, <laughs> um, tune in tomorrow for um, Friday breakfast, uh, Green Left Weekly Breakfast, and then we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.